Hi, my name is Emily Grant-Steff-Rice. I am the president of the Boston Society of Architects and an associate at Cambridge 7 Associates. I was the keynote speaker at uh, Equity by Design in San Francisco this past weekend. Uh, my talk centered on four central topics, uh, celebrating women in architecture, equity is for everyone, our greatest power is our voice, and what is our value. So uh, what I spoke about was celebrating women in architecture. Um, within architecture culture, when we see a woman succeed, it's both a celebration but a reminder of, to women of our special status. Uh, so we as a culture need to be careful in our desire to acknowledge uh, that when we hold individuals so so high on a gender pedestal that they feel pressure to represent all women in the profession, just as there's many uh, color swatches in um, the in the palette for us to choose from, there's many women in the profession of architecture. And we need to be careful that we don't mistakenly take one and have them represent all um, because there are many different types of architecture and ways to practice and individuals in the profession. And equity is for everyone. Um, the concept that there is one perfect pathway to practicing architecture, i.e. the traditional firm setting, denies the experience of those of us who have charted our own path for the flexibility, significance, or team camaraderie that frankly keep us in architecture. Uh, we need to get to a place where we can discuss gender and racial diversity by way of observation and acknowledgement rather than accusation. This is why I viewed the equity by design survey results and the symposium as a huge step forward in the equity conversation. I also spoke a little bit about how we need to acknowledge the generational rift amongst women in these discussions. Saying that inequity isn't as big of a problem today as it was 20 years ago may be true, but then again, it is still a struggle. At my daughter's preschool, they have a phrase, don't hurt other people's hard work, meaning don't criticize others knowing that other other people's hard work is hard work. Dismissing the concerns of emerging professionals on the inequity issue because the numbers are trending positive creates undue resentment. We should acknowledge the hard work of all, understanding that hard work will always be a relative term. Each one of us has our own agency and our own voice. While there are many mediums, Twitter, writing, speaking, design, collaboration, our voice is a way of communicating experience. When my four-year-old daughter has something to say, I know it. She's found her voice, sometimes too loud. But my husband likes to say, she got that from me, her mother. As a group, using our collective individual stories to describe a new practice where differences in working are celebrated, where achievement is not tied to the hours and numbers worked, where flexibility is seen as an asset, where teamwork and collaboration is the norm, and where we change people's lives. What is our value? The value of an architect is measured more than the height or square footage of a space, but in its moments. Orchestrating architects' connection between activity and action, evoking the human emotional palette, and creating comfort to touch our hearts, minds, and bodies. Our engagement is a key value proposition, so, me, so we, men and women, need to engage the profession and the public about good design, but also diversity and equity in architecture. Be bold and explicit. Why does architecture matter? Why is what you are working on change people's lives? Why does equity in architecture matter? Use your voice. This is how we eat the whale, one bite at a time. Until our profession reflects the society we serve, we will not have completely fulfilled our potential. Our work is not done, but then again, when is architecture ever done? That is its beauty. Emily Grant-Steffrace, President of the BSA and Associate at Cambridge 7 Associates.
Welcome to the Speak Podcast. The podcast is for architects by architects where we discuss all things about architecture. I'm Neil Pan. Each episode, Evan Troxel, Cormac Phelan, and me invite you in on the conversation as we talk about everything in the profession, both the good and the bad. Maybe you're considering a career in architecture. You're still in school or you've been around the block more times than you'd like to admit. Join us in the studio as we gather around the water cooler and talk about this profession we call architecture. It's time for some speak. <laughs> it's time for some speak. It's time for some speak. Welcome to episode 47 of the Arcuspeak Podcast. I'm Neil Pan. I'm Evan Troxel. I'm Cormac Phelan. This show is sponsored by Wolpertex and Boinobox. We'll talk more about them later in the show. First, we have some friends of the show to announce. The first friend of the show is John Gregg. He distributed $11.11. John is from Toronto, Canada. Um, thank you. Thank you, John. Our second friend of the show is Jordan Bales, who donated $10, and he's also up in Canada, but he's in Ottawa. I've been to Canada. Thanks, Jordan, for being a repeat friend of the show. So tonight we have a special guest, Rosa Shang, with us. And so say hi, Rosa. Hi, everybody. Glad to be here. So, Rosa, you are here uh, because you um, are representing the missing 32%. You kind of coordinated that effort. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that and, and kind of how, why you're here for starters sure. tonight? Okay. So, um, the missing 32% uh, was a symposium that started about uh, three years ago and it came into conversation when Architect Barbie, of all things, uh, came into production, and there was actually a lobbying effort by a lot of women architects about why she should be the next, you know, career Barbie. So that actually was this interesting conversation um, of, you know, what her role was, you know, to future women architects, and it brought to question. Um, there was a research finding that was done early on about how uh, men and women start off graduating from architecture schools. Uh, roughly at 50 50 uh, the exact number changes obviously but um, that compared with the people that un- actually end up staying in the profession the AIA had um, a survey number where the firm leadership and um, licensed architects that were AIA members were 18 percent so if you do the math really quickly 50 minus 18 that gave you 32 percent and that actually started before I got involved. Um, so there was three symposiums, uh, this being the third most recently. But the two before, I was actually involved in the one that happened last year. 
And I was uh, actually a last minute speaker for a panel on negotiations. And um, it was a point where um, in my own career, you know, I think I felt like I reached the glass ceiling. You know, I was questioning whether or not I wanted to stay in the profession. Um, And uh, somebody approached me who was a um, a colleague of mine and said, you know, you should really come and speak at this panel. It'll be a, you know great for you to kind of, um, you know, f- uh, purport your skills or, you know, share your um, insights on the profession. And I did it. And it was funny because it was on my birthday and I thought, heck, work-life balance, you know, what am I doing going to a symposium on my birthday? <laughs> but that changed my life in a way that I'd never thought possible. And that was that um, people actually, um, took the advice that I gave uh, to heart. And um, as a follow-up, they'd call me up or send me emails, take me out to lunch and say, you know, this is something really important. You've positively influenced me and how I view my career uh, as a woman in architecture. And, you know, these things aren't talked about um, on a daily basis or at all. It's just once a year. So why isn't there something, you know, an AIA committee or what have you that talks about these issues? So I asked the question stupidly uh, to the AIA executive director at the time, why isn't there an AIA committee on women in architecture? And she said, well, I've been asking, I've been asking that question for 12 years and you're the first person that's actually come back and, you know, kind of volunteered. So at that point I was like, oh, great. You didn't know you were volunteering. <laughs> what did I get myself into? <laughs> yeah. So at, at, at the symposium this year, I kind of uh, made it a, a visualization of a book I had read, Shel Silverstein. I don't know if you guys had read that book in your youth. It's called Where the Sidewalk Ends. Yeah. And there's mm-hmm. a poem in there, uh, very visual. There's this little girl named Melinda May who says she's going to eat this giant whale. So there's this huge whale on a table and there's this little girl. And everybody's laughing at her and saying, oh, you eat this whale. Ha, ha, ha. Not possible. Um, and she, you know, indignantly said she would. It took her 89 years to eat that whale. So on the second page, there's the little old 89-year-old lady, or however old she was, you know, 95. Um, and then there's this big carcass of a whale, finally eaten up because she said she would do it. So at the time that I said, yes, let's start this thing, I felt like, oh, gosh, you know, I've <laughs> committed to eating the whale by myself. And I have no idea how I'm going to start doing this. Um, but to my surprise, there are a lot of people that just came out of the woodwork when I said, okay, I'm starting this committee. First meeting is, you know, in July on this date. And about 25 people showed up. And again, it just keeps resonating with the fact that there is a need and, you know, people didn't have a forum and they felt strongly about coming together and trying to solve some of these challenges, you know, that we'll talk about a little bit later. Um, so that was a year ago. And since then, it's been this whirlwind wild ride of, uh, what are we doing? And okay, how are we going to get that done? So you started uh, a survey, right? Yes, we did. And that was our mission. So, so um, tell us a little bit about the survey. And then I want to get into some of the results that that were uh, revealed at the Equity by Design conference in October. Sure. So our our fundamental mission uh, for forming the committee was that we weren't going to just be women in architecture and it wasn't like a little powwow group. We were actually going to um, fill a need, which was that there was a lack of data on a bunch of these issues. A lot of it was anecdotal 
and why people leave architecture, but there was never a thorough survey done. So we were basically a startup. We had never done a survey before. Um, we had to educate ourselves a lot about how to do a survey. Uh, we had to find a research partner, um, which was really hard to do because, you know, we're this little engine, we're a brand new committee, and nobody had heard of us before, never done a survey before. So a lot of people turned us down. We went to the big research houses like Catalyst and LinkedIn. And uh, finally, it just happened that we had I had done a project at Mills College in Oakland, um, and there is a business school and uh, one of the professors, Dr. Eric Evenhouse, he, uh, we kept in touch and I was actually doing a tour of the building for Girl Scouts and he was there. We talked about me wanting to do the survey to find out more about why people leave architecture and he had this perfect solution, which was that his students needed a research project and we had the data. So it was a connection by happenstance. And then we obviously wanted to pay them for their effort, you know, because they're um, going through school. They need to make ends meet. But we got it, you know, very and at a very affordable level versus having to pay an expensive fee for a professional research house to do it. Mm. Um, so it's kind of like the little blue engine story that could. And mm-hmm. we, again, didn't know how. So we started our survey uh, design on SurveyMonkey. We had a, a great uh, core team of um, architects and uh, women architects in AIA that formed the design of the survey, the questions that came out of it. And very early on, you know, we had seen other surveys done by Architects Journal and um, an Australian uh, survey as well uh, that kind of focused more on, you know, the, the causal of, you know, how do you feel, you know, about being discriminated against? Do you feel discriminated against and we wanted to change that we didn't want people to feel that one this was a uh, survey just for women Uh, we want it to be about men and women in architecture because men are leaving too it's not just women leaving Um, so we designed it in a way where the first question was are you a man or a woman we just got that out of the way and then each of the questions sections um, there are primarily three one was on hiring and retention one was on uh, growth and development. Um, and then the last one was about meaning and influence. Why are you an architect, period? And there are about 90 questions. Um, the way we disseminated the survey was originally thinking, oh, we'll just concentrate on the Bay Area. But what happened was word of mouth got out and a couple of friends on the East Coast said, no, you should you know, launch this nationally. We think that a lot, it would resonate with a lot of people. So we launched it through Twitter and we used our website to kind of promote it. And it kind of caught on wildfire at first it was oh we'll be lucky if we get uh, a thousand you know respondents and then when it went over a thousand we thought oh we'll just be happy with whatever we get and we ended up with uh 2289 respondents uh nationally and if you go to the uh, architect magazine website they actually did this fun interactive uh map which shows you know how many people in each state responded so you can actually see the breakdown. And there's a lot of naysayers that say, well, it's not statistically valid. The way you conducted the survey was grassroots and it was self-selecting. So yes, uh, the people that responded, 60% approximately were women, 40% were men. But we say, hey, you know what? We don't care how we got the information. The fact that you had almost 2,300 people respond to the survey 
is case in point that there's something wrong here or people wouldn't be responding at that rate or care, right? Yeah, they're obviously, it's it's obviously an issue. There's that yeah. passion, you can sense it. Definitely. So that so, was uh, yeah. connected in February and it took us, you know, uh, about six months to actually process the information because obviously we're not the experts in kind of learning by doing. Um, but we finally got it all together in time for the symposium to share with everybody. So we'll have links in the show notes to to go and look at uh, the Missing 32% uh, project, um, which is at themissing32percent.com. So you yes. can probably look at that information in a little more detail. But Rosa, I'd, I'd like to ask you kind of what are the things that probably, or what are the things that stood out to you with all of the data that came back, um, you know, what are the what, two or three things that really kind of uh, maybe surprised you with the information that came back from the survey? Sure, sure. Well, first and foremost, um, we asked a question about when, you know, what, if people left architecture, when would, when they were leaving. And the um, answer to that was actually, uh, you know, in layers. So within the first three years, we saw the largest, number of people leave, both men and women. And um, I don't have the exact percentages here, but on our infographics, the, lo- the longest bar on each side was in that zero to three year period. So we've identified uh, what we call pinch points of you know, key times during one's career when people leave, and that's pinch point number one. Um, so if and then the reason why they said they were leaving uh, primarily was satisfaction, um, the lack of engagement. We obviously know that there's long hours and low pay involved when you first get out of school and the disconnect between what you think you're going to be doing and what you actually end up doing, right, is a point of dissatisfaction for most that causes yeah. them to leave. Those are, those are a few topics I know we've, we've touched <laughs> on in the past on the show, but I'm curious um, – how is that any different today than, you know, a number of years ago? I mean, you know, when I first got out of school, uh, as Cormac would say in the dark ages, you know, when yes. we still drew on stone tablets, um, <laughs> uh, those were the same things. I mean, there was a disconnect yes. between what you did in school and uh, that seems to persist today, uh, according to the information in the survey. Um, and And it doesn't surprise me too much to hear that that's oftentimes when people leave the profession because of that satisfaction. Um, it seems like the most people that uh, are going to stay in the profession are those that are uh, willing to get through that uh, period of time where there is low pay and, and, um, and long hours uh, is kind of putting in your time. I know the, the millennials uh, episode we did kind of spoke to that where they didn't, they weren't interested in doing that. So um, I'm curious yes. from, from the, from the equity side, um, you know, how, how are women maybe disproportionately affected by these pinch points? Yes. So um, that one, the first one we uh, called paying your dues which is similar to what you've been saying. But I think that one is the most gender neutral of the pinch points. The other pinch points occur later on in the career, uh, the mid-career point in particular, um, licensure being one of the ones that we focused on 
of a determinant of whether or not people stayed in the profession. And um, beyond that, there was another pinch point called caregiving, which is basically from the 15, 10 to 15 year mark. And again, we tried to um, sh uh, share that as not just being parents, but that's a point where you're either taking care of somebody else, your, namely your spouse, or you could be taking care of an elderly parent or a relative. And that's all you know happening in that later mid to late career point. Um, and then finally, there's what we call the glass ceiling, which we find fundamentally affects more women than it does men. Um, and in all these ca categories, it starts out with um, various factors, but licensure, for instance, um, you know, at the time that it's taking, it's taken longer and longer to get licensed, as we've seen with um, NCARB by numbers, they have some really comprehensive data about the average uh, time it takes for somebody to get licensed out of school. And right now it's in that seven to 10 year period. And that's also the period when life events happen or start happening. You know, people get established. There's a trajectory um, that, that we saw in a lot of the different questions we asked about you know, what is your salary? What is your position in the firm? You know, are you a firm leader? Are, are you the principal in your uh, firm? And in each of those graphs that you'll see on the uh, infographics, basically, it seems, you know, even though there's a gender gap in salary of about $4,000, um, we see that gap widen at, at that 10 to 15 year juncture. We see that uh, with firm leadership and you know being um, promoted to a principal leadership position, again, uh, roughly equal, you know, men doing slightly better or women doing slightly better. But then at that ten to fifteen year point, uh, it shifts drastically, where the delta, the gap widens to you know anywhere between fifteen and twenty percent, and. For, particularly for principals, it gets even wider, uh, up to you know, thirty percent difference between men and women, at the worst. All right, let's take a minute away from the show to talk about the first sponsor this week, who is Wallprotex. Once again, they're back with another sponsorship for Arcuspeak, and we really appreciate it. And what we would love everyone to do is to head on over to Wallprotex. That is Wallprotex with an X at the end of it. dot com, where you can see their commercial wall protection products. If you're doing any kind of commercial project where you need high end wall protection that is innovative, customizable, and durable, so if you're doing healthcare projects, if you're doing school projects, if you're doing civic work, anything where you need durable stuff against the walls, definitely check them out. They've got a team of dedicated in-house engineers and manufacturers, and not to mention over 70 customizable colors and styles to make your visions a reality. So we would love it if you would go over to wallprotects.com. Again, that's wallprotects with an X and check out what they've got to offer and let them know that you heard about them on Arcuspeak. We would appreciate that very much. Thanks, Wallprotects, for sponsoring Arcuspeak. And now back to the show. I was going to ask, did any of the data or, or uh, other information gleaned from the symposium even kind of shed any light on um, why there's this glass? I mean, I shouldn't say that. Why? I mean, we all know there's a glass ceiling. Yes. Um, I'm really curious to get at 
why and how do we break? Yeah, yeah. What are some of the sources of that glass ceiling and this this difference? Now, obviously, if somebody takes time out and and. I know when I first started one of the firms I worked for, um, there was a woman who had worked for worked there before, came back a number of years later, say after raising, uh, well, what she did is she raised her, uh, her children for a little while, uh, for several years, and then ended up coming back. Now, it seems fairly obvious maybe that, that maybe there's a gap there in... Yes. Um, experience and maybe what you're being paid because you don't have the same amount of years uh, in that maybe somebody who stayed in the profession. Now that, I don't know if that's, you know, that may not necessarily be a wrong thing, um, but it's just maybe more of a, a fact, you know, some, and not maybe gender specific, but, um, but I guess what I'm, what I'm trying to get at is how do women break through that, uh, that barrier and specifically it, was there any information that kind of came out of the symposium even that, that might give us some clues? Yes. Um, I've been doing a lot of reading this past year and, you know, constantly keeping up with not just architecture, but what is happening across all industries, you know, namely business driven or tech driven right now, there's tons of articles about implicit bias. Um, and, there's extensive research on implicit bias and that being, you know, it's not just uh, discrimination used to be what people called, you know, blatant discrimination against other employees. Um, That's not the case anymore. It's not intentional in most cases. One could say it's actually uh, the fact that we have primal instincts and that those instincts of us gravitate gravitating towards people that are like us, you know, or survival, if you will, um, now transpiring into, you know, how we judge people at work. And so Google did an experiment, and it's actually documented in the New York Times about hidden bias or implicit bias. And there's a fascinating um, website and a test you could take called uh, Project Implicit that's done by Harvard that actually challenges, you know, people that think that they don't have any implicit bias, but in fact, we all have some men and women both. And even more fascinating is the fact that women have implicit bias against other women. So it's something that I think may or may not be known by most people. um, But knowing is half the battle, knowing that, you know, from the point of hiring somebody, there was the study done where even just the resume and the name on the resume, and this is actually less about gender, uh, more about just cultural diversity, that if you had an ethnic name, you are less likely to be called in for uh, an interview than if you had a traditional, you know, Anglo-Saxon name. Right. Wow. Wow. So that was fascinating. Yeah. So so you're like starting off with uh, like one hand tied behind your back, just based on your name. So you thank your parents then. Or not even just your name, your uh, school, where you came from, right? We tend to gravitate towards people that went to the same architecture school or worked at the same firms or, you know, people that you know, right? And up until a certain point, that's all great and good because we want, we like people that are like ourselves, right? The more that they're like us, the more comfortable we feel like we're, we have some kind of connection with them out of the sea of people that we don't know. Right. So it's the self-selection thing of survival where, where we gravitate towards that. Um, but how, you know, when it impacts 
hiring and when it impacts promotion and you know how do we typically think about women in the workplace are women leaders you know i think part of that implicit bias carries into well you know women are nurturers or women are this or women are that but do people see implicitly see women as leaders and i think the answer sadly right now is no in in your basic you know un unconscious right um and that comes out in these like little micro actions. And again, it's not a blatant like, well, she's a bad architect or she's not as skilled as the guy is, or, you know, that's the default thing to say, well, he's advancing because he is more skilled. Uh, but there's this bind that happens. I think you may or may not have heard this in being assertive. You know, if you're in the book Lean In by Sheryl Sandberg, uh, she outlined it in a couple of these anecdotes. But if you're too assertive, you know, people find you. Uh, not likable that you're aggressive, right. and if you're not assertive enough, then you're 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 not you're not confident. You're not you know a leader, right? So it's constant constantly riding that line that a lot of people have challenges with. And how do you do it in a way that uh, doesn't prevent you from advancing? You know, just by skill alone, or you know, what what are the key traits that you need to have the secret sauce, if you will, that um, the principle factor or the, you know. Well, you know, it's funny that you say that because I've worked for uh, um, many women architect as the principal of the firm oh, uh, in, the, in the past. And, you know, um, one of the first firms that I worked for right out of school, you know, she had a, an uncanny ability to be able to land the projects for us. And she was a good, strong leader. Mm-hmm. But you could assume what the perception of her was, is that she was either a ball buster or, a, you know, this or that. And like, we'll, we'll keep it nice and clean. Yes. But, <laughs> but, but, she, but, you know, that was the impression. And she was just a good, competent leader, a good, competent architect, a good person to, you know, learn from. But the perception was, is because she was successful, well, you know, you know what she did to, you know, to get up there. And, you know, and yes. it's, a, it's a sad, I, I don't want to call it a fact, but I mean, it's, it's a sad, well, it is a sad fact that um, that's a perception that a lot of people have. It's either, you know, you, you said it best that they're either a strong, you know, leader, but they have this, you know, perception tag to them. Or if they consciously, and because I've known, you know, some friends of mine who are fellow project managers that um, are, you know, strong women that they consciously decided to kind of, you know, play back a little bit yes. and not, you know, be too assertive because of that perception. That's right. And, and, and it worked against them, you know. So it was almost a double-edged sword. It was, if you're too assertive... They think you're this way, you know, and it kind of works against you. And if you kind of sit back so that you're not overly assertive to not have that, you know, one perception, now you're on a, well, you know, she's just not, oh, you know, she's she's a weaker uh, leader than, you know, we really wanted or, or, right. or something like that. And, you know, and it, it, it's an unfortunate because right now, you know, I, I, I tend to, in our office, I'm the project manager that um, tends to be the the guy where all of the new kids coming out of school are. You know, I, I get them, 
And um, <laughs> you're a good teacher, Cormac. And, and a lot of times, um, I try in, in so far in the past, since I've um, been working there for five years now, um, I've had working on my team, three guys and five women. And five, two of the girls just went back to get their graduate degree. And the whole time I worked getting them out into the field, Mm -hmm. kind of showing them the ropes, kind of really trying to show them what we've talked about in the past. And you touched on earlier, this kind of gap between um, what we're taught in school and, uh, you know, what we're, um, you know, what the reality of the profession sometimes is. And there's that big gap between them. And then, um, you know, so, so what I'm trying to do is prepare them for understanding that unfortunately the design and construction industry today is still a boys club. Yes. So get out there and take a look at how it works. Look at it you know, with as critical of an eye as you can and figure out how to break past all of that. And that's what, you know, I've tried and, you know, I don't know if I'm successful. They're all still in the profession, thankfully. And, uh, and even the, you know, even the, um, two that went back to school, they're planning on sticking it out because they're, they're more than capable. In fact, they're, they've got a quality to them that, most of the guys that work with me don't even, you know, don't possess, nor I think are capable of possessing, you know, because it's just, I, I think they went into the profession or went into school knowing that, you know, they were different because they were women in a profession that seems to be mostly dominated by men that, you know, they were really going to try to, uh, you know, push past that because this is what they wanted to do. Yes, yes. So um, another part of our uh, initiatives, if you will, is, yes, there is a problem with, uh, you know, you might say, well, I'm just going to throw in the towel if that's the case. I don't want to ride the line my entire career. Um, But then there's the banding together and bringing together best practices or how do you get beyond that, you know, that perception or how do you do the workaround? So uh, part of our um, goal is to have this idea sh- idea sharing, and um, the one solution that comes about from uh, getting past that riding the fence, are you a leader or are you too assertive or passive, is to actually have uh, build relationships with not only mentors, but we're calling them champions. Uh, they're called sponsors in, in business, but you know, sponsors feels like you know somebody who's paying you money or something. So we're calling them champions, and these are people that are um, at a leadership level above you. That's probably your project manager or the project architect that you can learn from. But then they're also going up to bat for you when there is a promotion or review. Uh, you you know you form an allegiance with them and you purposely seek them out and say you know listen I. You know, I know it's tough being out there, but I think I can really learn from you. You know, can you watch my back? Do you have my back? You know, and of course, there's a, a um, it's not just the person um, who's asking for this champion who's getting all the perks, but the, um, the person working under them actually makes them, makes the project manager look good in turn. You know, so they're working really hard. 
making sure they're doing all the things that they're supposed to be doing. But then there's this system where that's actually being acknowledged. So when it comes time for a review, you know, your champion, your project manager, men or women would say, well, you know, I think you should know that Ashley or, or, you know, Pam over here has done this amazing job. You know, you might not have noticed, but I'm going to point it out for you and I'm going to tell you why. And having that person speak for you as an advocate is much more effective uh, than you speaking out for yourself. You know, because when you speak out for yourself, sometimes it sounds like, oh, you know, they're tooting their own horn again or, you know, what have you. They're bragging. Um, but so much more powerful when a champion speaks out for you and can confirm the amazing work that you've done. And even a client, you know, that's the ultimate champion, right? When the client seeks you out and says, I have to have X or Y person on my job, you know, men or women, um, because they just did this phenomenal thing and, you know, I want to work them with them again. Um, that speaks multitudes more than you trying to lobby for yourself. That's a great idea. I mean, we should all do that uh, more often and yes. have these champions, um, men or women. Could, yeah, and they could be your peers yeah. too. They don't necessarily have to be a higher up. Obviously, it's uh, more strategic if they're in a leadership position, but just your peers saying, you know, that you've worked well as a team or that you're collaborative, um, that helps a lot. So, Rosa, is that something that you recommend that somebody seek someone else out at their firm and, and, you know, go and ask them to be that person? Definitely. Yeah. I think it's definitely something that has to be intentional. Sometimes it happens naturally, but in, again, in most cases we see that the natural mentor relationships happen with, uh, men and men, you know, because there's the natural affinity of whatever it is, let's say, because they're in the majority you go out for the beer or you have your, you know, whatever fantasy football or your golf game, you know, that is a natural way for the bonding to happen. But men and women have a more awkward relationship of sorts, right? Where people might think, Oh, they're dating or whatever it is, but that's not necessarily the case. But if you keep it like above board and official, you know, in a more slightly more formal in a way to start out with, I think that kind of, intentionality um, helps with any kind of dispose any one of these, you know, uh, water cooler gossip things that might happen. So if you're a a firm owner or say somebody higher up in a a larger firm uh, listening to this, um, you know, this is something that you should uh, try and make happen officially at, at your firm so that it's not like, Somebody has to feel like they have to take it upon themselves to go and ask for this, you know, champion. Uh, you know, if 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 you're listening to this, you know, take it upon yourself to get out in your firm and make it a priority for the, uh, you know, for staff to do this, um, so that it it is it isn't seen as you know like the one person at the firm like, hey, I'd really like to have this champion, and it may seem awkward at first, but if you kind of make it. The, the procedure, how things work in the firm or in that person, that champion, say, is in your, um, you know, your, your review. 
Um, now, normally, I remember the larger firm I used to work for when we had our reviews, oftentimes it was like our principal in charge or the, the project manager we worked for would be in that interview as well. And they kind of acted sort of as your champion. Right. Uh, we didn't really call it that at the time, and uh, but that's sort of what they were there for. So I encourage anybody listening to this, if you're, if you're in that position in, in a firm, you know, make this the, the standard. Make this the way you do your reviews and the way you encourage your uh, staff to grow and have it get, get more experience and be more involved because it's only going to be beneficial for your firm. That's then right. you don't have the people leaving after three years or five years. Well, you yeah. know, I mean, it's not necessarily just about that, you know, firm specific, but, you know, you encourage people to be the, the champion or you be, you know, be that support at every level, like what you're That's talking right. about, Rosa, you're actually bettering the profession, which is, you know, um, kind of harkens back to what you were talking about with the, um, which we probably may not have time to talk about it, but, you know, I found it interesting the, you know, when you were, um, all, all these little key areas of when people were leaving the profession, you know, and early on I can kind of see, cause I've, I've seen it, you know, with, uh, interns that I've worked with in the past, you know, how they are very disillusioned at the profession. Oh, this wasn't what I was expecting. You know, I wanted to do something more exciting and, you know, and all right. of this other stuff. But, you know, if you have this, you know, mentoring or, you know, um, champion involved with their development, you know, as well as the, the own, you know, it, it's kind of helps with the um, uh, the champion's development as well, you know, and, and so on. It just kind of right. helps strengthen the, the knowledge base profession-wide. All right, it's time for our second sponsor of the show, and we've got a brand new sponsor this week, who is Bueno Box. And who is Bueno Box? Bueno Box is a company that aids firms in the process of transitioning into, you know what's coming here, Revit architecture. They provide a wide range of Revit services that include training, template creation, advanced family modeling, standards, and library implementation. They also provide realistic renderings, animations, and real-time walkthroughs. So they offer it all. They've helped many architecture firms transition from AutoCAD to Revit, and they understand the importance of integrating your current standards and workflows. They are designers as well and understand how important the process is. Their renderings allow them to act as an extension of the design process by giving your client the ability to easily explore many options very quickly, side-by-side with the design. And if you're beyond the beginning stages of Revit, they offer lots of other services as well. And if you go to their website and check it out, click on the BIM Services tab, you can see all the other things that they do. So if you know your way around Revit, but you don't want to spend your time creating custom Revit families, they do that. If you don't want to spend your time doing 3D visualization, they do that. They also have tons of other stuff, so check it out on the Bueno Box website. So if you're interested in exploring what they have to offer, visit buenobox.com or send them an email at info at buenobox.com and their links will be in our show notes as well. Thanks, BuenoBox, for sponsoring ArcaSpeak. And as a side note to all you listeners out there, if you could go check out our sponsors this week, we would really appreciate that. They have stepped up and become the first sponsors of this show in the early stages here. 
And we want to give them as much love as we can. So go to buenobox.com, go to wallprotects.com, and check out what they have to offer and see if it really works for you. And then we would love to hear what you think about them. All right? So that's just a side note. Check them out. And now we return back to the episode. But going back to something that you said earlier, Rosa, too, about about the hiring and, and the names and the you know where you're from, what city you're located, and all those things that you have that that implicit bias. Um, that's just absolutely crazy to me, and I think this is another thing that need that firm owners and leaders need to be challenged by is the the cultural differences that we have at our fingertips here with the possibility of these all of these different cultures and genders and everybody coming together to the more diverse your project team is, the better your project is going to be. And it is absolutely absolutely crazy to me that people look for people like themselves to work on a project, to do the creative work that we do. It's I've seen it time and time again with the women that I work with bring a completely different perspective that always makes the project better. And there's several women that I work with every single day, and I'm always blown away by how they think of things that I would never think of. And it's like, who doesn't want this, right? It's, <laughs> it's absolutely crazy to me because we work in such a creative profession, and all of the jobs that are spread out through all the different levels of production and design and technical and management and everything, there is so much opportunity there to yes. be creative, um, that that anybody's different perspective is going to help that situation, not hinder it. Um, so I, I wanted to say that because I yeah. think like um, that needs to change. Like architecture has to get its house in order, and the only way we're going to start doing that is by hiring people the right way. And then we women need role models that are higher up in these firms. That's right. And I feel yeah. like there's so many firms out there who don't have a really good role model to look at. Now, there are a couple of really good examples. And, and when I went to the Monterey Design Conference last year up there in Asilomar, mm-hmm. um, you know, there was actually it was three years ago now when Jeannie Gang was there and then Odile Deck was there last year. Um, there's, there's, you know, so many great lecturers that are women. That, man, they get me ex- so excited about architecture. And I feel like if we can get those types of people into our firms who are just, you know, natural visionary leaders. And I know that's asking, I mean, there aren't that many of those people, period. But yes. but getting them in the right place and see, nurturing those people into those positions is so important for women to be able to have that role model so that it's okay for them to be who they are, right? That's right. Well, it's the pipeline issue. Yeah. Uh, yeah. If we don't start keeping them you know, it, it always ends up that by the time you get past all these pinch points, what are you left with? You're left with 18%, right? Yeah. I mean, there, there is a whole like permission mentality, right? Where people are waiting for permission to do things. And I think the older generation that I think Cormac, you were kind of speaking toward, you know, the, the, there was a generation of women who had to kick ass to get to the point that they oh, that they got right. to. Absolutely, I don't know that it's necessarily like that as much anymore. But there, I don't, I don't know. It, it just <laughs> I don't maybe know there is, but maybe it. Yeah, I don't know. 
because there probably still is, you know, the holdovers and everything. But, you know, yeah, you're right. Yes. And, and that I, does leave a, a, a bad taste in, in anybody's mouth who works with oh, yeah, those people. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't matter. Well, let me, let me throw this out there because, you know, we're, we're talking about this and I just it just reminded me. Today, I was out on a job site. Project manager from uh, the, the school is, um, is a woman. And we're walking the site. Mm-hmm. And it was so cool because, you know, this is a uh, phase while occupied uh project which means that the kids are still walking through like you know the construction site and everything else and it was so cool because these three little girls as they're walking by us to go to lunch they're like are are you a girl construction lady (laughs) and they're just and she's like well yes i am and they're like that's cool and i could hear them as they were walking by it's like i i think i want to do that that's awesome that you know to be able to just hear and see that one little thing you know it's 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 being able to like break down what is the perceived barriers from early on it's like well you know girls can't do that you know no girls can do that and you know for them to just say you know hey i want to do that too you know it was it was great i I loved it so you know you catch them early and you say you can do anything Yeah, well, and we all we we have daughters, right? And uh, right. I mean, that's that's a constant thing that we're we're always talking about in our house. Uh, it's it's definitely top of mind, and I don't know if if it's a requirement to have, to have daughters to to think like that. I definitely don't think it is, but it's it's more present in my family's conversations, mm-hmm. um, and so I I feel like maybe maybe we maybe we care about this a little bit more. Because we, oh, we yes. have some skin in the game, but that's right. Anyway. And we have two daughters, and my husband is a champion, you know, for them as well, and for myself, because uh, it's a partnership. At the end of the day, ultimately, it, you know, women can't do it alone. Women need men to be in the game, as you've said, and uh, you know, I think that's why we phrased we we came up with the name equity by design. Uh, because equity is for everyone. Yeah, it's not just a women's issue. Right. Uh, everybody has skin in this uh, to be successful, like you've mentioned before. And uh, something else, else I wanted to bring up about the survey that was really fascinating was the negotiation question. So uh, we asked, "Have you ever negotiated, you know, a salary offer when you weren't satisfied with the uh, what was given to you?" And you'd think, "Well, you know, men probably negotiate more; women negotiate less." But in fact, um, in aggregate, uh, you know, very few people negotiated, both men and women negotiated about the same. But for uh, when you're comparing the salary of uh, negotiators versus non-negotiators, negotiators, by and large, always have the higher salaries. Hmm. And, you know, squeaky wheel gets That's you know, a good the lesson oil. right there. Yeah. Right. That when I'm doing ask, wrong. Yeah. Get. Yes. Yeah. And I would... <laughs> I would say the same thing when it comes to, you know, just satisfaction in the profession right. is if you're not getting what you need or what you want out of the place you're working for, but for some reason you feel like you've got to work there, there are so many other opportunities that you can take on yourself. I mean, like what we've done That's with right. this podcast or what you've done with the missing th- 32%, they lead to so many opportunities in the profession that are something you would never get in your firm anyway. 
Never. Uh, yes. Ex- it, it, there's so much opportunity out there, and it doesn't matter if you're a, a man or a woman at all. I mean, there's everybody's voice has a place in this industry um, in one way or another. And I feel like, you know, take it upon yourself to start something. And it doesn't have to start huge, right? It, you need to be yes. methodical and you need to start. Just start. That's the most important thing. So if you've got an idea about how you can do something for this profession, start doing it on your own. If your firm's not going to support you doing it, you know, go home after work and start working on it. Or join, you know, an organization that will support it, whether yeah. it's AIA or NCARV or whoever it is, you know, uh, USGBC, whoever is like you and your idea or your passion, you know, try to find people that align with that passion and you'll, you'll be surprised, you know, how many people are like you out there. Absolutely. Just not in your firm. We've said it several times on the um, podcast and I say it almost not on a daily basis, but I say it a lot um, with the, the interns that work with me is you make the career that you want. Don't wait for somebody else to make it for you. You've got to make your own decision. You've got to figure out what you want out of it. And if it's, you know, working here, if this is going to satisfy you in your career, great. If it's something that you think you can change about the, you know, firm, do that. But always make sure that you take control over what, you know, your own um, design of your own um, career. Because really, nobody else has a stake in it but you. That's right. Um, so, you know, to to what, you know, you're doing and to what, you know, uh, Evan said we're sort of doing it. Mean, we're we're trying to shape what we want you know, the profession of architecture to be. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, if it's handed to to you, it's it's probably not going to be something that you're going to be happy with, right? Right. So yeah, be a part of designing it. Great. Um, I'm curious, as uh, Neil has attended the symposium, what you thought of the day, and you know, obviously, I was running around like a chicken with my head cut off making sure everything was organized or happening so sadly you know it's like going to a wedding or something where <laughs> you're trying to attend to everybody at the end of the day you're just kind of looking back and scratching your head and wondering what happened yeah, <laughs> yeah i don't remember my wedding at all <laughs> i think the alcohol might have had something to do with that but no it literally was is exactly what rosa said it was running around making sure everything was going he was smoothly. managing the project he was managing. Yes, yeah. exactly yes, sorry <laughs> rosa what from my experience what i saw was um just an amazing thing that you did which was you were the champion for women in the profession of architecture um by by coordinating and organizing this event you were that lightning rod that really just brought everybody together and made conversation happen uh there were so many women at this event and and a, and a few men um that, that joined <laughs> there were a few um but uh I think what I saw that I was most encouraged by were conversations happening amongst other women uh, and and all everybody that was there sharing 
experiences, sharing the, uh, problems that they're having, and finding commonalities and finding you know potential solutions or giving getting ideas about what could be done, right. um, not just among the speakers that you featured and and what they said, but but just the conversations that were happening out in the hall and outside. Uh, uh, and, and that's what I, I, I saw a lot of that and just a lot of sharing of ideas and experiences and a lot of learning. And really, this is an event that is started and and is you know now going to grow. It started with you know with you volunteering to do the one speech, and now it became this, and boom, here's this symposium. A couple hundred people were there um, attending, and and now it's growing. It's almost like a, this is the beginning of fire. hopefully a movement <laughs> to change that perception, that that implicit perception. I think that's one of the things I picked up on when I was there was that maybe I I do have these biases that I'm not even aware of and and how what do I do to try and change those Absolutely. And uh we had a great story I think I mentioned at the beginning of the symposium um there's this woman named Pamela Tang who came to us when we first started the committee and she was one of the missing 32%. Um, she had gotten her degree back in the day in MIT um, and then started having a family. And then she felt like she couldn't do justice to having a career and the family. She had four kids. So she took time off to raise all those kids. And then last year, her son said to her, you know, mom, I'm going off to college. It's your turn now. You know, you should go back and pursue architecture like you've always wanted to. Um, so she came to us and she said, what do I do? How do I, you know, start? What what needs to be done? And we were kind of dumbfounded. We all had our implicit bias that, oh, you know, you know, she's so far behind, not just, you know, that she's older and that, you know, but uh, the profession has changed, right? It's like uh, being asleep with Van Winkle and all of a sudden waking up and then having to learn Revit and AutoCAD and to take all the AREs and, you know, just where do you start? Um, so we gave her this kind of laundry list of things that she needed to do, but I think all of us were implicitly doubting that she could actually do it. And, you know, after a couple of meetings, she left us and said, you know, I need to go concentrate on these things. So we thought, oh, great. You know, we probably scared her away. Um, but a month before the symposium, she, you know, contacted us and she was one of our sponsors and she said, thank you. You know, you really encouraged me. And I wanted to give back. She um, basically took all her AREs and passed them. Wow. She taught herself Revit and AutoCAD. And the most impossible thing was, oh, where is she going to find a job to get her IDP hours? Well, one of our uh, missing 32% committee people also owns a small firm. And she you know, found qualities in Pamela um, that she wanted in a project manager. So she hired her and... They want a project where Pamela is now the project manager for that. You know, and during the time that she was away from architecture, she had built up all these life skills, being on committees at the uh, the children's school, you know, volunteering, um, and man- and she learned all these things about management that came perfectly to fit with her new project and her new role. So, you know, perfect storm, all these things happening. But she's such a powerhouse and so positive through this whole thing. Uh, it just goes to show, you know, we started this uh, series 
called Inspire on our website. And we're going to actually ramp that up into an Inspire campaign where we celebrate these stories of people, you know, taking on the impossible or, you know, overcoming their challenges in a way that, you know, speaks, you know, tenfold into inspiring others to do the same. Yeah, it's awesome. You know, it's interesting you say that because my wife, uh, you know, she was graduating right around the time when we got married, started teaching, um, you know, just kind of shell-shocked at the whole, you know, teaching profession. Um, then, you know, we started to have kids and, she, you know, she taught for around eh, maybe three to five years. Can't really remember how long, but she decided to take time off and, you know, raise our kids and make sure that at least my daughter would get through, you know, get to kindergarten you know, so that, and then she wanted to go back to teaching. And it was so interesting that she feels like she's a better teacher now, not because of anything more than all of the life skills that she had acquired as becoming a parent, you know, interacting with, you know, exactly what you said with this lady is, you know, she, you know, all these different interactions that she had, she felt like she was better suited to get into the, you know, go back into the profession than she was, you know, kind of doe-eyed and fresh out of school. Um, so it's, that's kind of interesting that you say that. Yeah. And interestingly enough, Elizabeth Chu Richter, the incoming AIA national uh, president, uh, at the end, you know, she did a closing kind of uh, keynote and she revealed uh, her story, which is even, it was similar to um, Pamela's in that, you know, she had three kids, she took 12 years off from the profession, and she wasn't licensed at the time that she did that. And then she came back as well, got her license, you know, became a partner at her firm, and then is now AIA national president, right? Mm. So it's kind of the, the kind of, uh, you know, I don't know, <laughs> I'm so speechless. It's I'm awesome. So, yeah. oh, I, I think what's great about that, um, Rosa, is that, those women, uh, Pamela uh, included, are now role models. They're the role models that um, that we mentioned earlier with our own daughters. Um, I notice it with mine. Um, you know, she she looks up and she she even at seven notices that oh, there's only men in this show. What's up with that? And, yeah. you know, or if there is a woman character, she's all behind that. And, you know, like, hey, there's, you know, there, this is, uh, you know, there's, there's a, the main character is a woman and that's a role model. So all of the women, including yourself, that are, that are doing these things are becoming role models for all the other women in the, in the profession. And I, I think, you know, this is fantastic. This is what needs to happen because the more of these role models that, uh, younger uh, people in the profession see, and they like, oh, I see that person. They're the they're the the president of the AIA. Um, yeah. I can do that, and and that their that glass ceiling is starting to crack. You know, certainly maybe That's within right. the AIA uh, as a, with a woman president now, um, or president elect. I think she is, and and yeah. or however they say that. So. Um, you know that that's very positive and very exciting, and um, you know I, I'm I'm thrilled by this. I, I'm thrilled by what's happening um, and and what you're doing and what uh, what you've done. I mean the 
the whole equity by design was uh, such a fantastic um, you know symposium and it, it really got a lot of people energized i know a lot of the, there were many connections that were made uh, and and through social media uh, you know hopefully a lot of those uh, stay together yes and it's just the beginning um, you know part of the theme of the symposium was knowledge discussion action um, so the knowledge is the survey data and the outcomes from that and the discussion you know after you get the depressing data is to say well what are we going to do about it and then finally you know we're charging people to commit to action you know what can each of us individually do to contribute it could be small or large contributions and but these micro contributions add up to be the, the whole movement um, so we do have on our website uh, 15 things you can do to jumpstart equity today on our, and uh, if you just take a look, one of them is actually listen to Arcus Speak podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Go figure. Excellent. Uh, and then we're also, uh, I don't know if it's premature to say, but we've also been accepted uh, to AIA uh, National Convention in Atlanta to do uh, you know, a tasting menu version of the symposium for people that can attend uh, convention. That's great. I was going to ask if you guys were going to do anything there because I feel like these get-togethers are what keeps that momentum. That's right. right. Yeah. Yes. And then unofficially, we're going to be on tour, not officially, but um, the band's going out to, uh, you know, select places that we're getting sponsored to speak at um, all over the U.S. um, in the works, you know, whether it's... uh, you know, at another AIA's uh, event, but we're going to help them jumpstart, you know, how do you get equity by design happening at your local AIA or your local firm even? Um, And there's a lot of large firms that are interested in just implementing uh, equity by design in their own practice. So that's really great news that, you know, we're we're having that kind of impact at at that level. Absolutely. Oh, that that's great. That's great to hear, and um, and I'll I'll have a link in there for the uh, for that blog post for the fifteen things you can do to jumpstart equity in architecture. Because I think we all need to read that, and you know, try and do these things every single day, um, and so that you, we can all be a part of the process uh, and be aware of maybe some of these um, the uh, implicit biases that we have. And, and I think one of the things I saw and or heard during the, the symposium was that a lot of the women have these biases as well. Yes, that's right. And I was kind of surprised by that. Yeah. We judge each other. We're worse than the men. <laughs> now, how, now, now Rosa speaking as a woman, how much of that causes, you know, some of the problem? of women in architecture. Yeah, I think we have to counter that um, because women are generally more scarce, you know, than men. I think there's primarily, uh, there's a camp that says, well, I don't want to be called a woman in architecture. I don't, I just want to be an architect. Don't call me a woman in architecture. Nobody will mm-hmm. notice. And that was me for the longest time. Um, I just wanted to do good work and I didn't want to be called out. And I thought I was invincible and, you know, People were gender blind and yeah, nobody sees me as a woman architect, right? Um, but then things started to change uh, at those, you know, the mid-career 
pinch points, especially with uh, caregiving. And when, you know, I went off um, to have my two kids, you know, I started realizing more and more that, yes, there are things that happen, you know, whether intentional or not. Uh, stereotypes or stigmas that we have against mothers, you know, that there's this article about the mother um, penalty, the daddy bonus. And an implicit bias that we have is that, well, mothers should be the caregivers and dads should be the breadwinners. And when, you know, we see mothers, we think, well, you know, they're working part time. And even to this day, I've been working full time for the last uh, four years. And, I, you know, in a couple in the last couple of months, I've had people ask me, oh, do you still take Fridays off or, oh, you have two kids, therefore you must be working part time. You know, so we kind of have this uh, type cast of mothers that they can't do more than what they, you know, possibly could do because they're balancing these kids. And some women say, yes, I want to spend more time with my kids and they have every right to do so. But then there's women that want to still be in the profession and they want to try to um, accomplish that through, you know, work-life integration or flexibility, uh, but they just need to be given the chance to say, I want to take on more. I think oftentimes uh, there's a kind of stepping on eggshells about the employer thinking like, well, if I give her too much, I'll scare her away. You know, rather than assuming things, have the conversation, um, have a constant conversation about, hey, you know, how are you doing? You know, the, the on-ramping and the off-ramping, I think is what we're calling it. Um, you know, is this enough for you? Are you bored? Do you want to take on more? You know, how are you feeling? Uh, just asking those simple questions. You know, I constantly say, I can handle it. I can handle it. And they and I've heard, you know, but you, you know, you're, uh, you know, you have the two kids and you shouldn't, you know, or do you really want to travel? Do you want to do this? And, and I think it's up to the woman to say, yes, I want to do more right before we assume that she doesn't. Yeah, Absolutely. It seems like communication is lacking on so many fronts inside the, you know, the hierarchies here. Definitely. And but did, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, but don't you think that's kind of in a, in a way, a, it's interesting because, you know, you, you say that, um, you know, the way that we want to treat, or at least, you know, integrate women who have families and things like that into the profession and, you know, make sure that they've got the time for, you know, family and, and, and work and stuff. And I, I, I know I just watered it all down, so I apologize. Okay. But I, I think in a way it, it should be that the profession in general should, and, and it's, and it's not the steering it from, you know, being a, you know, man architect and woman architect, it's, you know, architect in general, but, you know, it's, I think that the way that this profession seems to operate in just the expectation of hours, you know, regardless of, you know, who you are. That's right. Needs to change and start to kind of start to understand that, you know, the millennials that, you know, we're talking about um, on a previous show where we were like, you know, well, you know, they don't want to put in the work or the effort and stuff. No, it's they just don't want to work these crazy, insane hours that we now just think is part and parcel to the profession, you know, and, you know, maybe it's not just, you know, looking at, um, you know, how 
we can get, you know, one side or the other side to, you know, integrate family or integrate private, you know, their, their own personal lives and stuff, but just kind of blend it all together so that we can start to be aware of, you know, how insane <laughs> the, the hour demand is on the, on everyone. Yeah. I think that, um, it starts with asking for enough be, um, it's so important at that contract negotiation phase to get enough seed to support the right amount of staff so that you're oh, yeah. not understaffed and then oh, expecting yeah. <laughs> people to make it up with three hours, right? Yes, yes. And but, that's why we emphasize negotiation. We had a, a breakout session called Negotiation is Your Power Tool. And typically, uh, there was a survey done about just people uh, negotiating in general, men or women, and uh, there's five different uh, they call styles of negotiation. So the most uh, risk averse, or one co- called avoidance, and most architects are avoiders. Mm. And rather <laughs> not talk about it, like, oh, I need to go ask for additional services. Well, if I put it off, maybe later, you know, it'll happen. Well, guess what? Never Time happens. Yeah. If you don't ask for it when it happens or you don't train the client to expect that you're not going to nickel and dime them, but at the same time, what's fair is fair. Right, right. If you don't train in that expectation, it's just a losing battle. The more service you provide for free, it's never ending. Um, the more that they're going to say, well, last time you didn't charge me an additional service. Why are you starting now? Right. <laughs> so... Uh, I'm only laughing because I'm only laughing because I'm living it right now. <laughs> we have to stop that habit on on, on so many different levels. I, it, it could go through a laundry list, and you're like, "You're the problem. You're the problem. Stop it." We're gonna have a twelve step program. So, Rosa, I I want to take a step back, and and I mean, we've talked a lot about the event. And we've touched on a number of things that happened and, and some of the positive things that came out of it. But I want to take a step back and ask you, um, what are you most surprised, one, and maybe two, happy about, about everything that's been happening with the entire missing 32%? Sure. I'm surprised. I think uh, the amount of volunteer effort and sponsorship and support that's come out of this. Um, the people that came to the symposium were from all over the U.S. We had people, you know, taking time off from work, flying out, um, paying for their own plane to get hotel, everything, just to come to be with us. And I was just astounded um, by the number of people that did that. And we had speakers you know, like Emily Grandstaff Rice, uh, Mark LePage, and even Stu Friedman, who is our closing speaker, you know, mostly on their own dime come out to be with us. And I, I'm truly grateful and, and thankful for that. And it just speaks. Uh, and I, I also have to thank my uh, the planning committee and the missing 32% committee throughout this whole year. Um, people have been stepping up. They've been held accountable for what they promised to do. And they've delivered and over-delivered, you know, every single day. You know, we've asked people to pull crazy hours for this project, um, all for the sake of being able to expand the conversation. So I'm um, 
really surprised and thankful for the amount of effort and passion that people have for this conversation. And I forgot the second part of the question. <laughs> what was the second part? No, I think that was it. You know, what, what, what has been, what have you gotten out of this for yourself? Okay. That it, I think I mentioned before to you, Neil, that I had worked with Steve Jobs um, and the reality distortion field, you know, came into play a lot where we would, I was trained in, you know, school and whatnot to say, well, if it doesn't work, you have to say it. Well, it doesn't work. And he would always ask, well, why? Why doesn't it work? And then you'd have to pause and think about it again in that light. And basically, he taught us to think anything was possible. Um, if you apply yourself and, and you are determined and, you know, time is your enemy or your friend in that regard, if you're against the clock, you know, you have a shorter amount of time to make the impossible possible. But um, with this process, I kind of, kind of uh, recaptured that, that, you know, uh, what seemed like it was an impossible task, the whale eating, and it still seems like it some days, uh, has become possible through belief, you know, that there is a greater uh, good that, you know, I'm here to contribute to and, through determination and just asking, you know, if you don't ask, you don't get, um, or if you don't pursue, you don't achieve, right? So everything that we've done, you know, early on in my career and then transforming itself into uh, the social impact reteaches me every day that uh, that can happen. You have, if you dream it, it can, you can achieve it. That's a great story. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, I think that's probably a good place to uh, wrap up this conversation for this episode. <laughs> Thank you for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. Well, we appreciate it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And we'll put all kinds of links so that people can find out more if they if this is the first time hearing about you guys, which I doubt. Um, but they can they can go through those links and learn more and read and research and get get in contact with you there. I'm sure, right? Yes, absolutely. And help start the conversation. Yeah. Yes. Or continue it. Yes. And start in action. Do something every day. <laughs> Great. Great. Well, thank you very much, Rosa, for spending the time to be on the episode. We really appreciate it. And everything that you're doing with Equity by Design and the Missing 32% Project. And as you've said during the episode, this is only the beginning. So stay tuned. There is more coming. Absolutely. And thanks for giving us a voice, a bigger voice. <laughs> yeah. Anything that we can do to help. All right. Thank you again. Cheers. Yeah.